Rick Merrill and Dory Collier were best friends whose lives were cut short far too soon. On May 8, 1981, the two met up at a lounge in Brooksville, Florida. Around 1 a.m., they told friends they were headed out to score some drugs and would return in about half an hour. 90 minutes later, the Hernando County Fire Department responded to what they believed to be a call about a brush fire near Stafford Avenue in Brooksville. They found a car on fire, and when the flames were extinguished, discovered the bodies of 24-year-old Rick and 20-year-old Dory. The coroner found the victims had been injected with drugs, and both were alive when the car was set on fire. Initially, the fire would be ruled accidental. Months later, authorities listed the fire as arson and the deaths of Rick and Dory as murder. Four suspects were identified, but 40 years on, their families are still waiting for justice. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the mystery of who killed Rick Merrill and Dory Collier. Rick and Dory were very close, but they were never romantically involved. The 20-somethings were at that stage of life where you're young and having a lot of fun, but you're also coming into your own, gaining more independence and trying to get your life together. Rick and Dory worked in the service industry. Rick's family owned the Ark Restaurant in Wikiwachi, and after high school, Rick had started managing the Ark. Rick's family were always open and honest about the struggles he faced in the years before he died. His dad, Jim, told the Tampa Bay Times Rick had difficulties with drugs on and off again since high school. But after completing a treatment program, he began to face the problem head on. As Jim understood it, Rick had stayed away from heavy drugs for more than a year before his death. Jim said it was clear Rick was using marijuana from time to time, but he was working hard on a path forward. Part of his recovery was the stability of managing the family restaurant. Jim noticed that about three weeks before Rick was murdered, he seemed down about some personal problems and suspected it had something to do with Rick being involved with drugs again. Rick's best friend, 20-year-old Dory Collier, was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, but following her parents' divorce, moved to Florida with her father around 1974. Dory was a waitress at Fat Boys in Brooksville. Her manager, Belinda Arney, described Dory as one of her most beloved and popular staff members. Dory was the kind of person who was always smiling, and she was excited about a couple of firsts in her life. Her dad had bought her a new trailer, so she had her first home, and she had gotten her first checking account. Dory was known as someone who was strong and confident, but she was also just easygoing kind of went along with what everyone else was doing. She was just never one to stir things up. 
which may explain why Dory died alongside her best friend, Rick. On May 8th, 1981, Rick was working at the Ark when he got a phone call. He wrapped up work and left the restaurant around 8.30 p.m. When Dory's shift ended at Fat Boys around 10.30, she changed her clothes and met up with Rick at a popular downtown Brooksville lounge called the Hilltop. They walked in around 11 p.m., and as they opened the door of the lounge that Friday night, they heard the sound of the Blue River Band playing their signature blend of country-western with a splash of classic rock. Around 1 a.m., Rick and Dory left, with Rick telling friends they were leaving to score some tea, which is slang for PCP. They were upbeat and in good spirits, saying they'd be back in about half an hour. But Rick and Dory never returned. Around 2.30 a.m., a tow truck driver noticed a fire near an abandoned shed in the 300 block of Stafford Avenue in Brooksville. This was about a mile from the Hilltop Lounge. When firefighters responded to the crime scene, they found Rick's black 1979 Chevy El Camino parked by an old railroad trestle. It was engulfed in flames. After the fire was extinguished, firefighters discovered the charred remains of two people in the vehicle. Back at the hilltop, Dory and Rick's friends wondered what happened to them, but as the night wore on, they assumed they must have headed home instead of coming back to the lounge. But the next morning, word spread around small-town Brooksville that Rick's El Camino had been discovered engulfed in flames, and no one had heard from Rick and Dory since they left the lounge. When word spread that bodies were discovered in the car, everyone assumed it must have been Rick and Dory. The Stafford Avenue crime scene was known as a parking spot for young people in Brooksville and young people from other parts of rural Hernando County, which in 1981 had a total population of about 50,000 people. There wasn't much to do in the county. As is true of any small town, young people always find a way to entertain themselves. Rick Merrill had been known to pass time by dealing a little marijuana. Investigative journalists who have followed the case of Rick and Dory through the years have always noted that small-town drug deals were common in Brooksville. But murder wasn't. Especially not a gruesome double murder like Rick and Dory's. Following the discovery of Rick's car engulfed in flames and two bodies inside that vehicle, for nine days, the investigation and identification process left Rick Merrill and Dory Collier's families confused and frustrated. And investigators admitted the identification process moved slower than they expected due to the condition of the bodies. The bodies were initially transported to Likes Memorial Hospital, where autopsies were performed the next morning. 
two hypodermic syringes were found outside of Rick's burning car. Tests later revealed traces of PCP on one syringe. PCP is a strong animal tranquilizer that can be injected or smoked in a form known as angel's dust. Tests on the second syringe revealed no identifiable substance. Blood tests revealed alcohol and PCP were present in Dory's body. PCP levels were also present in Rick's blood, along with traces of methoqualone, another commonly abused tranquilizer. The coroner's report determined the presence of these substances in Rick and Dory's bodies meant they were semi-conscious or unconscious at the time of death. Investigators also found Rick and Dory had made no attempt to leave the car. The doors were locked, the engine still running when firefighters arrived on scene. Rick and Dory were alive when someone set the El Camino on fire. The coroner's report noted smoke inhalation as the cause of death, which means if they were semi-conscious, Rick and Dory would have known the car was on fire, but would have been physically unable to move or make any attempt to save themselves from the horror of being burned alive. As autopsies were performed on the then unknown victims who had been discovered in the burned out car in Brooksville, Rick Merrill's parents and Dory Collier's father knew it had to be Rick and Dory in that car. They had not been seen since they left Hilltop Lounge and they weren't the kind of people who would just take off and not say anything. The whole identification and confirmation process seemed odd and communication lacking, which led to more frustration for the Merrill and Collier families. It would be two days after the autopsies were performed when Jim Merrill got a call from the coroner's office asking the family to release Rick's dental records for the identification process. The Merrills agreed, and that afternoon, three days after Rick and Dory's bodies were discovered, their families met with Brooksville police investigators for the very first time. The Monday after the discovery of Rick's burned-out car, Rick's dad was processing the reality that his son was gone. He closed the Ark restaurant and placed a white wreath at the door. When folks drove by the restaurant that day, they saw a large sign out front that read, closed due to a death in the family. On May 13th, an investigator with the Florida State Fire Marshal's office arrived in Brooksville to examine Rick's El Camino. This was the same day a memorial service was scheduled for Rick. On the afternoon of May 14th, the Merrill and Collier families met with investigators for three hours and pushed for answers. They found it hard to believe that so much time had passed without formal identification of their loved ones. It would be May 18th when the state officially identified the victims as Rick Merrill and Dory Collier. Florida newspapers followed the Brooksville murders early on 
because double murder in the area was so rare. And they stayed with the case, pushing for answers. When Brooksville Police Chief Ron Novi was asked to respond to the family's criticism of the identification process, he said the process was delayed because of limited resources, which required technical expertise of outside agencies. And we do know it was a challenge for experts to make a final determination due to the damage the body sustained during the fire. Rick was identified by his dental records, but Dory could only be identified through blood test and witness identification of jewelry she was wearing at the time she died. Three of her coworkers confirmed the jewelry found at the scene matched what Dory was wearing the night she disappeared. Once Rick and Dory were officially identified, there was continued frustration with how authorities handled the murder investigation. Jim Merrill, Rick's father, criticized the Brooksville Police Department for their tone from the beginning of the investigation, telling the Tampa Bay Times that Dory and Rick had been treated as, quote, just another couple of druggies biting the dust. Dory's father, Aubrey, would also make an official complaint about the investigation to the Florida governor's office. After the fire had been extinguished and the bodies discovered, even with mounting evidence that Rick and Dory had been intentionally burned alive, a Florida Department of Law Enforcement tech listed the deaths as accidental. Bob Johnson, the lead investigator with Brooksville PD, pushed for the fire to be considered arson and the deaths listed as murder. A fight he won when all of the investigative bodies helping with the case, from Brooksville PD and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to the state fire marshal's office, got on the same page. When they looked at the totality of the autopsy report and the crime scene, it became clear this was a murder investigation. Investigators responded to mounting criticism not only from the family, but from the community as a whole, saying they compiled more than 800 pages of reports along with interviews, lab work, and more evidence that had led to a significant development in the case. On July 31st, 1981, Brooksville police held a press conference. Lead investigator Bob Johnson announced four suspects had been identified in the murder of Rick and Dory. Three of the suspects were known to have left the area shortly after the murders, but one was still in the area. Johnson made it clear that none of the suspects were related to Rick or Dory, but all four of the suspects had connections to each other. He also clarified that it was possible only one or two of these suspects were actually involved in the murder of Rick and Dory, but authorities believed all four knew about the murders and had critical information about motive and why Rick and Dory were killed. That press conference was the first time investigators didn't publicly reference the deaths of Rick and Dory as an accident. They finally called it what it was, murder. Police Chief Ron Novi 
announced during the press conference that the fire was arson fueled by a petroleum-based source and Rick and Dory had died due to carbon monoxide inhalation with a secondary cause of death being the fire. The press pushed law enforcement for more information about the suspects and motive. Authorities wouldn't speak to motive either because they didn't know or because it could have compromised the case. Hernando County Assistant State's Attorney Jimmy Brown spoke at a press conference in December 1981 and confirmed investigators had solid suspects, but clarified he just didn't have enough evidence to present to a grand jury to ensure they got an indictment. As Rick and Dory's family continued their fight for justice, they had to endure their grief along with small town rumors spreading throughout Brooksville and Hernando County. One of the most damaging was a rumor that local drug dealers learned Dory Collier was a drug informant working for local law enforcement, which was the motive behind Rick and Dory's murder. Brooksville Police Chief Ron Novi went on record with the Tampa Bay Times, saying this rumor was categorically false. Dory had not worked for their department or any law enforcement agency. So little is known about the night Rick and Dory died, apart from the friends leaving Hilltop Lounge around 1 a.m. and the fact that they planned to come back in about half an hour. The Stafford Avenue crime scene is about a mile from the lounge. The drive would have taken Rick and Dory at most five minutes. Their bodies were discovered around 2.30 a.m., which left investigators with three big questions they needed to answer to solve this case. What were Rick and Dory doing in that critical 90 minutes? Who were they with? And why did someone feel they not only had to die, but had to die in such a gruesome way? What message was the killer or the killers trying to send? Rick's dad, Jim, never minced words. He told the Tampa Bay Times he believed Rick was involved in a drug deal of some sort, and there was a confrontation after someone took a pound of marijuana from him. He also knew Rick had about $500 in cash on him the night he died that Rick had planned to use to pay his car and insurance payments. Perhaps a confrontation over the drug deal and a robbery led to Rick's murder. As to Dory, it's always been believed that she was in the wrong place at the wrong time and would likely be alive if she hadn't decided to go along with Rick that fateful night. Now, looking back at that critical 90-minute window between Rick and Dory leaving Hilltop and the discovery of their bodies, Jim Merrill theorized that Rick and Dory were driven to the Stafford Avenue crime scene by a third person, and their vehicle was followed by another car. After Rick's El Camino was set on fire, the killer, or killers, drove away from the scene with one or more of the suspects inside. Which brings us back to those suspects. 
Authorities refused to ever name any of them. By December 1981, all four had left Hernando County. Investigative journalists who followed the case would learn a little more about the suspects, but it took time. By 1983, an article in the Tampa Bay Times revealed one suspect had an extensive criminal history and had recently been imprisoned in Florida. He had also served time in Illinois. Jim Merrill claimed this suspect offered to talk about the murders in exchange for being charged for a lesser crime. Merrill said that when this suspect didn't get the deal they wanted, they refused to talk. When asked to comment, then Hernando County Assistant State's Attorney Chip Harp said Mr. Merrill was wrong. That's not what happened and left it at that. You can understand the frustration on the parts of Rick and Dory's family. Rick and Dory had been taken from them in such a horrific way, and the communication with law enforcement was lacking. Even when someone agreed to talk to them, they had very little to go on. All four suspects were questioned. All four denied having anything to do with the crimes. And as far as we know, there have never been any other suspects or persons of interest in this case. Four decades later, no arrests have ever been made. There were four solid suspects who had either lit the fire that killed Rick and Dory or were present when it happened. We know now that a lot of the connections made between these four suspects and Rick and Dory's murder goes back to hearsay, which prosecutors struggled with because they needed solid eyewitnesses who were willing to testify before a grand jury, and they needed solid physical evidence to get indictments. Imagine your Rick and Dory's family in 1981. You're fighting for answers, for justice. You continue to wait. And two years after the murders, no one has been arrested. There's no further developments and the investigation seems to stall out by 1983. That was the last year the Brooksville Police Department made an official statement about the murders of Rick Merrill and Dory Collier. The department was disbanded in 2018, but the following year, the Hernando County Sheriff's Office took over the investigation. With a new department working the case and a website dedicated to bringing attention to Rick and Dory's murder, there's hope that someone will step forward with information. Even the tiniest of details could mean a break in the case. Detective George Lloydgren is a respected investigator who's been featured on Oxygen's Cold Justice. He's led the Rick and Dory murder investigation in Hernando County since 2019. His passion for this case has offered Dory's sister, Diane Wodel, renewed hope. There are still four solid suspects, and it's believed they're all still alive. In fact, the suspects identified 40 years ago remain the only suspects in the case. Dory's sister, Diane, launched the website rickanddory.com to, as she put it, shake the tree 
and hope something will fall out. Everyone involved in the case would now be in their 60s and 70s, and time is running out. But Diane hopes renewed attention on Rick and Dory's story, along with advances in DNA and forensic technology, and tips from anyone who has memories of Rick and Dory just may lead to long overdue justice for her sister and Rick. It's something Jim and Vicki Merrill never got to see. Tragically, Rick's parents, along with his brother and sister-in-law, were killed in a crash of a private airplane in North Florida in 1988. Jim and Vicki had so passionately sought answers and helped keep attention on the case locally in Florida because much of Dory's family lived in Ohio and other states. For seven years, they did all they could to champion justice for Rick and Dory. And it's heartbreaking that they died in such a tragic way, never knowing who had taken Rick from them. Jan Glidewell, a reporter with the Tampa Bay Times, spoke with the Merrills and Dory's father, Aubrey, many times. In 1988, when news broke of the accident that killed Rick's parents, he wrote a lovely remembrance of the family and spoke of how important it was to continue to find answers for them. He wrote of the Merrills, they loved their son and they felt he was on his way to straightening out his life when he was killed. And they were determined to have justice, not revenge, but justice. Dory's father, Aubrey, died in 1992. Her mother, Nerilyn, in 2015. With Rick's parents and brother gone, his sister, Kelly, along with Dory's sister, Diane, remained determined to keep telling Rick and Dory's story until that one person who knows something is willing to step forward. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. Rick and Dory's case has never really been a whodunit. It's a case that needs a solid tip to give investigators more to go on to get indictments against solid suspects who were identified 40 years ago. The window for justice is still open. If you or someone you know has any information related to Rick and Dory's case, you can submit an anonymous tip to HernandoCountyCrimestoppers.com or contact Detective George Loigren at the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. That number, 352-797-3714. And if you consider yourself to be a bit of an armchair detective, Diane Wodel is asking for your help to solve this mystery. If you're listening and moved to learn more about Rick and Dory's case, you can head to the prime source for this episode, rickanddory.com, where you can view a detailed crime timeline, along with photos and articles through the decades. I'll have a link to the website in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. Well, if you like Southern Mysteries and want to hear more, you can hear a bonus episode each month 
when you join me on Patreon. I want to say thanks to my newest patrons, Anne from Hobart, Indiana, Lee from Las Vegas, Kristen from Hollywood, Florida, and Catherine from Omaha, Nebraska. They've been catching up on all the Southern Mystery Shorts episodes, and you can too when you join me today at patreon.com slash southern mysteries. And remember to make sure you never miss a new episode. Tap the follow button where you're listening now. Appreciate that and appreciate you for listening to Southern Mysteries. <laughs>